Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Aside from the, the one week sort of um, hiatus uh, in Ephesians last week, as we heard uh, a video message from Mike Christ on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we have been walking all the way through the, the letter uh, of Paul to the, uh, the Ephesians, really the church is kind of in the Asia Minor uh, region, probably more than just this one congregation were intended to receive and, and hear this letter. Um, and we have spent now, this will be the third and final week that we spend in the passage on the armor of God, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, uh, that broader passage. And he's been, as you'll recall, in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, laying the foundation of the gospel that we believe, uh, the, the new life that God has imparted to us through Christ, the fact that he's raised us up to new life, seated us, united us to Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places, and brought us together, Jew and Gentile alike, in the one people of God. Then chapters 4 through 6, he's been telling us kind of what life uh, in the gospel looks like. What, what a gospel-founded life, uh, the shape of that life, and, and the community church shape of that life. And so we've had you know series of, of exhortations about unity and about um, how to live in Christian houses holds in your various relationships, husbands and wives and parents and children and, uh, and, and ser servants and masters really sort of in our day, more like employers and employees, those in leadership over us, etc. And then he concludes the letter with this final broad exhortation to everybody who's, who's listening, uh, urging Christians to pay attention to the spiritual battle that we are in. He reminded us uh, back in uh, verse uh, 10 through 13 uh, that we face a very real, a very strong spiritual enemy. And so we have to enter the right kind of battle with the right kind of weapons. And so we need to fight a spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons. And then he begins to unfold uh, what those things are. Now, the first uh, five pieces that we looked at of the, the armor of God are were defensive pieces, and so the the last time we were in this passage, we talked about uh, the the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and and all of these things, and uh, and so the the defensive pieces of the armor. And today, uh, as we conclude this section, um, we'll we'll look at the offensive weaponry uh, that God has given to His church. So I'm going to read for us verses 10 through 20, just so we have the whole context. But we're going to focus today on really the second half of verse 17. So sometimes, like in Bible drill days, they would divide verses into letters, like 17a is the first half, 17b is the second half. So if we were using that, it'd be 17b through 20. That'll be our focus uh, today. But I'm going to read for you 10 through 20. So we have the whole picture uh, in our minds of this battle that we're in and the... Uh, the defenses and weapons that God has entrusted to uh, his people. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day 
and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The big idea for today. So here's the point that I'll make that I think I, I see in this text that I hope to unfold for you. The point is this, the kingdom of God is advancing and its weapons are the word of God and fervent prayer. All right. The kingdom of God is advancing. You could even replace the kingdom there with the church. The church of Jesus Christ is advancing and its weapons are the word of God and fervent prayer. So the first statement in that is the one I've got to defend first. The kingdom is advancing. The church is advancing. Um, you could get the sense from what we've read so far. Uh, the, even the majority of this passage, perhaps, uh, that the church is just on defense, right? That the church is like, we're all kind of huddled back together uh, in, in a corner and the enemy is coming toward us. And we're just like, okay, we got to put on all our armor so that we don't get crushed by this enemy. And that is not the picture that Paul intends for us to have of the church of Jesus Christ and of the kingdom that Christ is building. Yes, we have an enemy. Yes, he attacks us. Yes, Ephesians 6 has presented us with defensive armor against his deceptions, distractions, discouragement, and accusations, right? He, he has told us about ways that God has equipped us to withstand the attacks of the enemy. So he will attack, and we do need to be ready to knock out the, of the air the flaming darts that he sends our way. But the one who needs defensive armor is not the civilian in his home. It's the soldier on the battlefield. The one who needs to be equipped even with defensive pieces like a helmet and a breastplate and a shield is the one who is marching into battle with his army. The armor is necessary because the one wearing it is advancing against the enemy and marching into the line of fire. And so it is with Christians. We need to be careful not to think of the armor of God and the weapons that come with it as entirely defense, as though Jesus is just sort of standing idly by, letting Satan wage war against his church and waiting for the right moment to sort of step in. That's not the case. The kingdom of God is growing. It's being built. It's advancing against the enemy. And we have been enlisted in that battle. That's the very reason that we need the defensive armor is because we are marching into war against Satan 
and his kingdom. We need to be careful to remember that the battle is a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. At times, the church has not done a great job of making that distinction. And so we take the the imagery of warfare and marching against the kingdom of of Satan, and we apply it to the realm of of political, social, uh, geographical things and national entities. And we think if we kill that enemy, we're doing the work of God against Satan. And I don't think that's uh, the right application here. We need to be sure that we're fighting a spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons. And indeed, we need to remember that the very reason we have this armor at all is because we are not at home on our couch huddling inside for fear of the enemy outside. We are in battle, marching with the people of God. I want you to remember the promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis Right after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin, God comes and finds them right in the garden. And he begins to pronounce uh, judgments and curses upon them and upon the serpent and upon the earth itself uh, because of uh, that breach. And in the course of giving these curses and and these judgments for sin, God makes this incredible and gracious and redemptive promise as he's pronouncing his curses upon the serpent. He says to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And of course, the serpent is Satan, right? That's the form that he appeared uh, to Adam and Eve in that uh, Genesis narrative. And he's identified as that in the book of Revelation, Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent, right? So we, we see the, the continuity there of this is the, the devil. This is the, the, the enemy of God and the enemy of his people. And God promised, even in the course of pronouncing judgment and curses upon sin, he promised that he would crush the serpent through the seed of the woman, namely the Messiah, the Savior who would come, Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God would come in human flesh and fight the battles of the people of God by going to the cross and triumphing over death. And so as he promised that he would, uh, through the seed of the woman, crush the head of the serpent, we need to make sure we hear that not as a defensive strategy. That is an offensive strike against Satan and his kingdom. That was the promise from the beginning. Right at the start of our fall into sin, God reminded them, God promised them, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I will defeat Satan. I will crush him. And then if you fast forward a bit to the life of Jesus, In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he gives this incredible promise to his apostles, specifically to to Peter, as he's asked him, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and he says, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. And then he says to, to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build my church. I don't think Peter personally is the rock, by the way. I think it's the confession that Peter had just uttered, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. That doesn't sound passive. That sounds active. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are gates? 
Gates are not offense. Gates are defense, right? You put a gate up at the wall, at the front of your city to try to keep the enemies out. And Jesus is saying here, the gates of hell will not stand against the advance of the kingdom. This is not a defensive strategy at all. This is an announcement, a declaration of war, and a promise that he will be victorious. And in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, he already delivered the fatal blow that will ultimately lead to Satan's final destruction. And so as he's on his way to destruction, he flails about and he tries to do as much damage as he can to the people of God and the cause of Christ. But we know he's on the way down and we know Christ has already won and we know he's enlisted us in this advancing kingdom against the forces of evil. He doesn't mean that the church will withstand the attacks of the enemy. He means that the enemy will not withstand the advance of the church. So let's make sure that we hear the armor of God within the context of the team that we're on. We're on the winning team. We're on the advancing team. We're marching down the field and we're about to score the game-winning touchdown. And the gates, the goal line defense will not withstand it. That's uh, what is going on here in the church and the kingdom of God. The church is advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing, which means we have to have weapons. Even if you have the best defensive pieces in the world, if all you have is your bare hands and you're marching into battle, you're not going to last very long. So he's given us weapons. I see two here, and they are the word of God and fervent prayer. The word of God and fervent prayer. That's our offense. These are the weapons that he has given us. Look again at verse 17, right in the middle there. He says in all, you know, take up, uh, excuse me, taking up the helmet of salvation. And here's the second part, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the sword of the spirit, of course, continues the metaphor of the armor. Breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, belt of truth, sword of the spirit. That is capital S, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the sword of the spirit. And so that we don't get too confused about what that might be and start speculating, making things up. He tells us, by the way, that's the word of God. It's God's word that provides the, the point of the spear for the attack of the kingdom of God against Satan and his kingdom. In an ordinary battle scenario, that would be useless. If you went into battle equipped with an announcement from your king, hey, we're going to win, right? Everybody just put your weapons down. It's over. We won. That's not a good strategy, right? You're, they're going to go, uh, yeah, right. And you're down, right? But we have no ordinary king and his words are not ordinary words. The word of God is powerful. You remember what we read a few minutes ago in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, when God speaks, there is power, there is penetrating clarity, there is truth that will not be denied. And the word of God has been given to us as our weapon. You know, it's so interesting in that passage in, in Hebrews chapter four, as it speaks of the power of the word and the, the, the sharpness of the word, and it's living and active. And, and we say, amen, amen, amen. And then the last phrase in, the, in, that, uh, in that passage says this, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And some of the very power of the word that the author in Hebrews was speaking of there is its power to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is when God speaks to us, when in his word, his truth by the spirit of God penetrates our hearts, he is laying us bare. His truth is a mirror. It holds up uh, a mirror to us to see our lives, our character, our weaknesses, our failures, our sins. And so when the word of God speaks to us, at times it doesn't really feel victorious. It's God's word that, that lays us bare by bringing our sin to the surface, by displaying to us our desperate need for grace, and then revealing to us the very one who covered our sin and empowers our life with his spirit, Jesus Christ. The word of God both reveals our need and answers our need by pointing us to Christ, who, who met every demand that the law held against us and who satisfied justice on our account. And so God's word at, at, at once removes our defenses we can't stand it. We can't argue. No, no, that's not, that's not the truth. It, it at once removes our defenses and becomes the surest defense that we have. The word of God, namely the capital W word of God, the logos, the word of God who became flesh, Jesus Christ, who stands in our place, who fights our battles, who covers our sins, who unites us to himself so that what's his is ours. His Resources are our resources. His future is our future. This is the Christ who is revealed to us in these very words that penetrate the soul and, and lay us bare and begin to convict us of our sins and wrongdoings. Christian, don't shy away from the word of God in letting it play this role in your life. I think it's it's natural for us as we're if we're reading the Bible or we hear a, a word um, that 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 accords with the scriptures, maybe from another Christian or a sermon or something, and and we're we don't like how it makes us feel. We feel convicted. We feel uncomfortable. It's very natural for us to sort of push that away and to sort of start making arguments and self justifications in our mind. Oh, that's not really what that means. Or ah, he can't be talking to me because uh, that's not really true of, of, of my own life or character. Don't shy away from that experience of the word of God 
convicting and, and bringing clarity about your own sins and weaknesses and need for Jesus. Don't read the Bible merely for, you know, quotable wisdom, looking for quotes for throw pillows and things like that. Read the Bible to provide the Spirit of God an opportunity to challenge, convict, and persuade you. Read it so that your very heart may be formed by it. So that when we march into battle against the enemy, against Satan and his evil forces, we have this convicting and clarifying and redeeming word of God filling our hearts and our minds. And we're ready with truth to fight against his lies. The Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks, who wrote uh, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. I quoted this a few weeks ago, but uh, from that book a few weeks ago. Here's another uh, portion that I find uh, helpful. He's going to point us to the reality of Christ, the example of Christ and how he fought against Satan. He says this, he who fights against Satan in the strength of his own resolutions, constitution or education will certainly fly and fall before him. Satan will be too hard for such a soul and lead him captive at his pleasure. The only way to stand, conquer, and triumph is still to plead, it is written, as Christ did. There is no sword but the two-edged sword of the Spirit that will be found to be metal of proof when a soul comes to engage against Satan. Therefore, when you are tempted to impurity, plead, it is written, be holy as I am holy, from 1 Peter 1.16. And let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. If he tempts you to distrust God's providence and fatherly care of you, plead, it is written, those who fear the Lord shall lack no good thing. Psalm 34, 9. It's a really good description of the way, a practical way to bring the word of God into your spiritual battles. Because we've already talked about Satan's schemes, right? And the kinds of attacks he makes. He's going to try to, uh, to, to cause confusion and bring deception into your life by distorting the truth of God. If you've got words from scripture that that boil the truth of the gospel down into a nutshell that you can speak to that very doubt that very deception the word says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of god speak that bible verse second corinthians 5 17 i believe or 21 speak that bible verse against that temptation to, to doubt or to be deceived. He'll try to uh, distract you and keep you off of the, the main uh, mission that he's given to you and, and to the church. Bring back a word from scriptures. It is written, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The word of God provides defenses, not just defenses, but striking back against the devil when he comes our way. It's the word of God that gives us this, this, uh, the point of the spear as we advance against his kingdom. So here's a few ways to, to wield the word of God. 
right? So if the word of God is a sword in your hand, let me give you just a few things, a few ideas of, of, of ways that you might sort of equip yourself with the word to do battle against the devil. One is just plain personal Bible reading. It's not new. It's not innovative. You've heard about this for a really long time. Uh, just about the beginning of every year, you probably hear exhortations about starting new Bible reading plans and going through the Bible in a year and things like that. Whether you do a plan like that is not for me to, to say, um, but read the Bible, right? Get the Bible into in front of your eyes, in your ears. If you want to listen to it, that's great. Get the Bible into your heart and into your mind, reading it for yourself. That's one of the things that I hope will, will benefit from in our, uh, our upcoming discipleship group series, Unfolding Grace. It's going to be a, a, a division of sort of daily readings in the scriptures as we walk through the Bible, not the whole Bible, but not every text from the Bible. As we walk through the Bible sort of with this redemptive historical narrative, the big story God is telling, it'll have us daily in the word of God. And then we'll have opportunities uh, in our small group meetings to, to discuss and reflect on what we're seeing and learning and hearing from the Lord in his word. So that'll be a great way to encourage that, uh, to, 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 to grow in your own personal Bible reading. Another way to wield the word is Bible memory. Some people are better at this than others. It comes more naturally to some than it does to others. And people memorize in different ways. Some people do great with plucking out a verse and writing it on an index card and just kind of learning it by rote memory. Other people do better by reading a long passage and reading it over and over and over. And it starts to sort of just become natural to you and you'll remember, you know, big pieces of it. However it works for you, memorize the Bible. Memorize Bible verses and Bible passages. Uh, you know, pick a chapter to try to memorize it in its entirety. Uh, pick several verses in the Bible on a theme. If there's some, a, a need that you see in your life, find some Bible verses that, that speak to that issue and memorize those. Um, there are different ways to, to go about that, but there, there is no shortcut to having the Bible sort of in our lives and minds and hearts. Um, there's no way around the need to not just hear it, not just read it, but actually remember it. Psalm 119.11, a well-known verse says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. It helps us to fight against sin, to have the word of God hidden in our heart. The way to hide it in your heart is to learn it. It's to memorize it. It's to have it in your mind. Another way to wield the word is to read the Bible with a friend. Ask somebody in the church to meet up for coffee or have a Zoom meeting or whatever once a week, once every other week, once a month, and just read the Bible together. Hey, let's just read through the Gospel of Matthew. And you meet up and you read a chapter and you talk about it and you pray together. Just read the Bible together. I, I think the, the relational component of that, that they get the, the fact that somebody else is tracking uh, with you may even cause a little bit more, I don't know, incentive, motivation to sort of stay on track or whatever. Um I think we can help each other by reading together. Frankly, read the Bible with an unbelieving friend. If you have a friend that doesn't know the Lord, just say, hey, do you mind just meeting up with me and reading the Bible together? And that might provide great evangelistic opportunities to share the gospel with him. But it has you in the Bible. It has the Bible in front of you. And the more you read it, the more you experience it, the more you'll come to, to know it and to be able to breathe it out more readily. 
final idea uh, in terms of ways to wield the word of God is simply this. Receive the word humbly and attentively in the corporate gatherings of the church. When scriptures are read, uh, when sermons are preached, purpose in your heart to receive the word of God. Purpose in your heart, I will listen, I will learn, I will, by God's grace and his spirit at work, I mean, put this into practice in my life. That's, we maybe underestimate, undervalue that sometimes when we're thinking about discipleship and how we grow. Um, the word of God forms the, the backbone of, of what we do in our church worship gatherings and the life of the church. So when we're together, be intentional about how you hear and engage with God's word. So there are a few ways to wield the word of God. I'm sure that there's more. You may have other ideas that you could share later and encourage each other in that way. So there's the, the, the primary weapon, the only weapon here that gets a name uh, in keeping with the metaphor, right? It is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The kingdom of God is advancing. We are on offense, not on defense. And the weapon we're going into battle with is God's word. It is written. The second weapon, go with me here. The second weapon that I see here in this text is prayer. It's fervent prayer. Because I want you to notice something here. The same spirit who swings the saint's sword is the spirit who empowers the saint's prayers. Look at verse uh, 18. After he has said, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Then he says, praying at all times in the spirit, that same spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And then he goes on from there. It's the same spirit who, who gives us the, the word of God that we wield against the enemy, who empowers the prayers of his people. Praying in the spirit. We wield the, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and we pray in the spirit. And in fact, Paul speaks at greater length in this passage about prayer than he does about the word of God, which isn't to say that, uh, that he thinks prayer is more important than the word of God. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that prayer probably deserves a bigger role in the life of most Christians, myself included, than it usually gets. And not only prayers to make us feel better about things we're facing, but prayers that advance the cause of Christ and are themselves offensive strikes against Satan and his kingdom. Now, the structure of the passage doesn't, uh, doesn't quite present prayer as a distinct piece of the Christian's armor and weaponry, right? Especially in the English translation, as it says, you know, take up the sword of the spirit praying at all times in the spirit in verse 18. Um, and, uh, but, but grammatically, they're really the same. So in, in Greek, these are all participles. And so he said, you know, take off the whole armor of God. And then it's participle after participle. In other words, uh, putting on the breastplate of righteousness, taking up the belt of, you know, fastening on the belt of truth, uh, having your feet fastened with the uh, shoes of the readiness of the gospel, right? So these are all like, manner. You take, you fight, you stand firm, you take up the whole armor of God. How do you do that? By putting on the breastplate, putting on the helmet, taking up the sword of the spirit, praying at all times in the spirit. 
So grammatically, it's, it functions exactly the same as the sword of the spirit does. It's, it's a taking up the sword of the spirit. It's a praying at all times in the spirit. And so I, I think that Paul intends to give more or less equal weight here in terms of he's delineating uh, defensive pieces and offensive pieces. And so I think in Paul's mind, the offense of the church against the kingdom of Satan is the word of God and it's fervent prayer. It doesn't get a cool designation, you know, like the chain mail of prayer or something like that, um, unfortunately. But in the context, uh, and I think in Paul's general thought and practice, as you even read his letters, um, it functions like a spiritual weapon. So fervent prayer needs to not be disregarded or discounted as a weapon that God has given his church to wield against the enemy. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? All right. He says, praying at all times in the spirit. I think it means three things. I think it means praying in a way that is compatible with the spirit's goals. In other words, the things we're praying for are things that we know that God wants. God, give me a new Lexus is probably not a goal compatible with the spirit of God, right? Maybe it is. Maybe he has it in his mind and in his plans to give you Alexis down the road. I'm not sure. But we know that his desires are to glorify Christ, to spread the gospel, to defeat Satan. Right? So there are things that we absolutely know. We know that it's his desire for his people to be holy, to be sanctified. So there are things that we can pray that will be compatible with the goals of the spirit. And I think that's part of what it means to pray in the spirit, pray in ways that are compatible with the spirit's goals. Secondly, it means pray in a way that's dependent on the spirit's power. Pray in a way that's dependent on the spirit's power. And I think and what I mean by that is um, we should recognize as we pray that he is the one with all the resources, not us. We don't come to him with all these plans and ideas and, and going, all right, God, now get to work doing what I want you to do. We come to him going, I don't have what I need. I am not equipped for this battle. I don't know what's going to happen. I need you. I need your strength. I need your power, your wisdom. Will you guide me, fill me, strengthen me, help me? So in our prayers, there's an attitude, a posture of humility that's appropriate that I think shows that we trust in the power of God's spirit to work in and through our prayers. So we pray dependent on the spirit's power, knowing that if he chooses to act, it will certainly come about. And if he doesn't choose to act, it will certainly not. That's the sort of attitude and confidence we ought to have in prayer. And then the third thing I think it means to pray in the spirit is to pray in a way that is submissive to the spirit's wisdom, submissive to the spirit's wisdom. He's not going to grant you everything that you ask for. That doesn't mean he isn't listening. That doesn't mean that uh, he doesn't care. What it means is God has a better plan. God may hear what you ask, even something that is compatible with the goals of the spirit and, and that's offered in a way that's clearly dependent upon the power of the spirit. He might hear all that and know the specific thing you're asking for is not going to meet the need that you hope it will, but here's something that will. 
here's what I actually intend to do. And I think you're going to see at the end of the day, this meets that need in an even better way. I think that's the way that, that God and his kindness and care as our father interacts with our, with our prayers. And so we, we pray in a way that is not demanding. There's a lot of that in the name of Jesus at times, like, God, we call against every blah, 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 and we demand this, and I call that into being. That's not the way that Christians should pray. We should pray submissive to the will of God, submissive to the wisdom of the Spirit. So when we pray, we know, God, you do what you will do. You take our feeble requests and form them into something that advances your plan and do it, right? And we trust that he is going to do what is best. I always think a great example of this is, is Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest uh, and right before his crucifixion. He's pleading with his father, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Right? He's asking God for something. And what he's asking for is deliverance from the cross that he's about to endure. But what he says at the tail end of that is, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Your will be done is always a faithful prayer for a Christian to pray. I'm not sure what you've heard, but it's always a faithful prayer. Lord, your will be done. If this is your will, do it, right? And if what I'm asking for doesn't match your will, then disregard it, right? So I think to pray in the spirit means to pray compatible with the spirit's goals dependent on the spirit's power and submissive to the spirit's wisdom. I think that's, I think that's what's going on there. So when we come to prayer, if we're going to regard it as Paul intends us to, I think as a weapon, we have to remember the wartime context of our lives. It's very easy uh, to think of ourselves as sort of like we've got everything we need and life is generally peaceful and good. And, you know, like, Prayer is maybe just sort of a, a luxury. That's not the life that we're living because there's an invisible spiritual reality all around us that we are in, whether we know it or not, all the time of warfare. We are at war with Satan and his kingdom, and we need to know that and remember that. And that is why prayer is a weapon in this warfare. John Piper uh, has this little pithy kind of rhyming couplet where he says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. And that's a little bit cheesy, but I've remembered it for 15 years since I first read that. So it did what it was supposed to do. You cannot know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. So the reason that he gives us this direct line to God to pray in the spirit is because we need his strength in battle. We need him to equip and reinforce us in the march against the kingdom of Satan and his forces, lest we be swept aside and caught up in his schemes. He says something like prayer is, is not just for sort of calling more comforts into the living room. It's for calling for reinforcement in the trenches, right? We are at war. We are in a battle with Satan. And so we need to use prayer in that way with fervency, with diligence, with seriousness, right? We're praying for the advance of the kingdom of God over unbelief, over the kingdom of Satan. 
So here are a few ways to pray with spiritual power that I think we see right here in the text. Number one, paying attention to the spiritual needs around you. Paying attention to the spiritual needs around you. I see that in the phrase alert with all perseverance, right? He says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Supplication is just a big old fashioned word for requests. It's just asking God for something. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. So pay attention. Know what's going on around you. Be able to discern where the sort of hot points are in the battle. Whether that's a temptation that's coming your way or there's an opportunity for the gospel that you should march into and take advantage of. We need to be attentive to what the spiritual need is around us and pray in that way. We pray against temptation. Lord, help me stand up against this temptation right now. We pray for the opportunity. Lord, I see a potential opportunity to share the gospel. Please give me courage. Help me to enter that situation Bless this opportunity, this conversation, right? So we, we pay attention to the spiritual need and pray accordingly. Another way to, to pray with spiritual power is to pray for other Christians. Look at that. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul explicitly exhorts us to pray for each other. We should pray for, for other Christians in our own church. And again, I think all the saints is a pretty broad uh, umbrella. We should be praying for Christians in other parts of the world. We should be praying for those who faithfully uh, represent Christ and believe the gospel all over the globe, that they would remain faithful, that they would be uh, diligent in sharing the gospel, uh, that, that they would be preserved and, and protected for the glory of God. We should pray for one another. That's a way that we pray with spiritual power is to look at the needs of other Christians, those you know well and those you don't, and pray that God would equip them and enable them to do this battle faithfully. Third, pray for your faith leaders, pastors, uh, teachers, uh, etc., people that you uh, look to for, for guidance and leadership, counselors, whatever that be. Those in kind of Christian uh, leadership, pray for them. You can see in verse 19, he says, and also for me, right? This is Paul saying, also pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim uh, the mystery of the gospel. So, so pray for me, he says. I'm, you know, a, a apostle, a leader, a teacher. Uh, I'm working here as a missionary to advance the gospel. Pray for me. And so I think there's uh, exhortation there to for those who are in spiritual leadership in your life, pray for them. I need that for sure. Pray for God's uh, protection and for holiness and for uh, divine energy and opportunities and wisdom Pray for uh, your spiritual leaders. Pray for gospel advancement and even for personal opportunities. I think there, as Paul is saying, uh, what he's asking them to pray for specifically is that, that he would have uh, the opportunity to, to boldly proclaim the, the mystery of the gospel. The mystery, again, being this uh, revealed truth about uh, how we're made right with God. It's, it's, it's just a summary of the message of salvation. Um. We should be praying specifically that the gospel would advance, that there would be new opportunities to present it, 
that there would be people who don't yet know Christ, who would hear the gospel and respond in faith and repentance and come to him, that we would see conversions, right? That people would be brought from death to life. We should be praying for those things. We know that's compatible with the aims of the spirit. We know that that depends upon the spirit's power, right? That is praying in the spirit for sure to pray, Lord, advance your kingdom by spreading the gospel and by bringing unbelievers to new life in yourself. Pray alone, pray together, use every opportunity you have to pray. I find praying together is a really helpful way uh, to engage with God, not only because it sort of forces us to focus a little bit more because we're all together doing the same thing, but you also get uh, you hear the, the ideas and, and perspectives and passions and heart of, of other Christians, and they might pray for something that you wouldn't have thought to pray for. And once you hear them pray that, you go, oh, yeah, man, that's I really I agree with that. Lord, may, let that be. There is such strength in in corporate prayer in praying together. Um, we do that uh, once a month in our uh, pray first meetings. We pray for, for one hour. It's a great way uh, to come together and to encourage each other as we lift one another up and, and the work of the Lord around the world. That, that, that's my hope and purpose in the sort of pastoral prayers that I give each week as well. Um, it's not necessarily because like um, I have the best ideas of anybody, but I'm, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for our congregation together to hear and agree and sort of respond in, in, in unity as we are praying together. So yes, I'm voicing the prayer, but it's not like everybody just listened to Pastor Kyle pray for a few minutes. It ought to be. Um, you're praying along with me. And I, I try to be intentional about using a plural pronouns. We, Lord, we ask because I'm, I'm speaking in, in a sense on behalf of our congregation as we uh, come to God. There is real strength and, and benefit in corporate prayer, whether that's multiple people praying uh, all together uh, or, or that's one person voicing a prayer in public on behalf of the rest of the congregation. Uh, praying together is a really important way to do that. So there's a few ways uh, to pray with spiritual power, to, to regard prayer as a weapon that God has given us against the enemy for the advancing of his kingdom. So the kingdom of God is advancing. It's on offense. And the weapons that God has given us are the word of God and fervent prayer. It is written and Lord, let it be. These are the weapons that we have as we enter battle with Satan. We do have a formidable foe who is earnestly seeking ways to devour the people of God. Peter told us that he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But as Martin Luther's famous hymn asserts, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came in the flesh and bore our sins in himself upon the cross and rose to victorious life so that all who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord would be forgiven, 
would be adopted, would be united to him, and would be enlisted in this battle. And friend, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, you have everything you need to defend yourself against the attacks of the enemy and to advance with the gospel for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. May it be more and more in our case and in our experience in these days. Let me pray.